0: As you'll hear in the news rundown of our podcast in just a moment, no one messes with the subject of today's episode, South Korea. Just ask Netflix, who's put on notice, along with 20 other multinationals by the South Korean tax authority, for placing their entities within the jurisdiction at bogus loss positions, at least according to the tax authority. More on that story later in the show, as we mentioned, but as we mentioned, but the bottom line here is South Korea can be a tough jurisdiction to crack. For one thing, the risk of an audit isn't just high, but it really should be considered basically on a routine twice a decade basis and rest assured transfer pricing documentation will always be the first item in any audit that you end up seeing especially if your profits are fluctuating as was in the case purportedly for Netflix but just as with every jurisdiction we visit on the Fiona show staying ahead of the South Korean tax authority has a lot to do with understanding what makes South Korea South Korea maybe this podcast isn't officially slotted under the post-war history category on Spotify, but be advised, today's show, like Transfer Pricing as a Discipline, Will reward curiosity. You know what else is rewarding? Cold, hard CPE credits. That's right. And you can earn them by listening to this episode. Here's how it works We're planting three CPE code words in this episode. Email all three to The Fiona Show. That's all one word. The Fiona Show at xbs.ai. One more time The Fiona Show at xbs.ai. And we'll reply with your CPE certificates. Without further ado, let's hear more about transfer pricing in the news. Sorry, multinational taxpayers, but the number of places where you can get away without filing transfer pricing documentation is dwindling. The latest jurisdiction to pile on the demands, Chile. On August 31st, 2020, the Chilean tax authority issued a resolution mandating that multinational companies meeting certain thresholds, file a local and master file starting with business year 2020. The reports generally follow OECD guidelines, with the master file outlining the group's big picture, the nature of the global business operations, the overall transfer pricing policies, and the global allocation of income and economic activity. The local file, of course, should draw conclusions from the economic analysis, methods, comparables, interquartile ranges, and hang on to those supporting documents intra-company agreements financials apas because the chilean tax authority wants everything but the kitchen sink Is it us or does Netflix always seem to be in hot water when it comes to transfer pricing? Last year, Italy launched an investigation against the company claiming the streaming giant's optic fiber cables and servers constitute permanent establishments in Italy and therefore tax dollars too. This year on August 27th, South Korea also put the company on notice along with 20 other MNEs. The Korean National Tax Service has issues with losses allocated to South Korea. In fact, the tax authority claims Netflix paid its U.S. headquarters phantom management fees so it could put itself in a lost position and avoid paying taxes in South Korea. The result, too soon to tell in both countries, but one thing is for sure, no matter where you go, tax authorities sure aren't messing around. It seems tax authorities are finding fault in all kinds of business structures these days. The consolation, the courts don't always agree with them. That's what we gather from the Tax Court of Canada's recent ruling against the Canadian Revenue Authority. On August 27th, the Court of Canada ruled that AgriCity Limited correctly priced herbicide sold through its Barbados subsidiary and therefore is not on the hook for tax on 6 million Canadian dollars or 4.6 million U.S. dollars in profits. Backstory AgriCity Limited had an agreement with a Barbados entity, an entity which the CRA declared a quote sham, to sell clear out to Canadian farmers. A generic version of Bayer Monsanto's weed killer Roundup, clear out and herbicides like it would have to be registered with the Canadian Pest Management Regulatory Agency, a long and complicated process. So, in a workaround effort to make clear out available to Canadian farmers in 2005, AgriCity set up New Agco, a subsidiary in the US. The problem, those US taxes are high. So in 2006, AgriCity moved the subsidiary to Barbados. New Agro purchased the weed killer through a special program that allowed it to sell directly to Canadians and parent company, AgriCity took care of all the logistics and administration involved with importing and selling it to Canadians. So everyone wins, well, except the CRA which felt it was losing out on 2007 and 2008's significant tax dollars due to an artificial arrangement concocted to hide the fact that AgriCity was really the true seller of the product. Using transfer pricing rules in Canada's Income Tax Act, the CRA tried to allocate some of the Barbados's profits to Canada, but the tax court said not so fast. The initial U.S. arrangement was proof that this structure was not in place for tax purposes but for bona fide business. Reasons. New Ag Co. was the purchaser of the herbicide and it bore the risk of drop in demand and currency exchange. It bought using US dollars and sold in Canadian. So, what could the CRA do? Well, except for appeal. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern day transfer pricing everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country specific regulations. Mimi, thank you so much for being with us again on The Fiona Show. You're hardly a stranger to the program, obviously. And usually we ask questions about our guest at this point. But since Mimi has been on so many times, we're going to cut straight to the picture and get to know South Korea in the big picture. So, Mimi, uh, right off the bat, how likely is a tax audit in South Korea?
1: So, in south korea i think companies can generally be expected to get audited on a cyclical basis maybe around every four to five years normally all the companies go through a rotational period and really it depends on the size of the company right so the larger the company or or the bigger the company like if you think about companies like a samsung or hyundai right, very large global companies Those companies are going to be under scrutiny, under audit more regularly. And in fact, they probably have an office specifically set aside for the tax auditors. So on an annual basis.
0: And is it likely that transfer pricing will be audited as well?
1: It it is more likely nowadays that transfer pricing is a high risk area i think historically speaking there is a notion right within the asian community that you have to pay your taxes because it's a it's a social inevitability and so many multinationals especially those operating in korea for example the the notion was, you know, be a good corporate tax paying citizen, right? Contribute back to society, and so transfer pricing may not have been as big of a focus. Except now, when we talk about a post BEPS environment, I think South Korea has become that much more cognizant of the challenges that are posed, right? Because taxpayers are not going outside of the rules. They're staying within the confines of the rules, but they're taking advantage of tax loopholes, of tax arbitrage situations. And so inevitably, with the increased visibility, the Korean tax authority is now being that much more conscious about what the implications are. They're much more likely to look at transfer pricing um, under a tax audit situation. So it has become one of the most challenging areas, I think, when you're under audit in South Korea.
0: And just interrupting briefly for our first CPE code word, and that code word is Koryo, spelled G-O-R-Y-E-O. One more time, G-O-R-Y-E-O. I know, a little bit heady for a CPE code word, but you're gonna learn something today. Koryeo is actually the name of the 5th century kingdom from which Korea and the Korean peninsula derives its name. See, you learned something today. Returning to our conversation, Mimi, uh, is the NTS targeting any specific industries right now?
1: I don't know if they're necessarily targeting specific industries, but definitely they're looking at companies with more volatility in profits. Right, so if you see fluctuations that go up and down, volatility, and the profits, um, or or companies that have a high royalties that are being uh, paid to companies abroad. Those are the situations that are going to receive a lot more attention. But that those, those situations are actually the same for any country these days, based on the guidance provided, based on any jurisdictions. You know, South Korea is sort of taking the same position as many different tax authorities and countries to say, if there are outbound payments, especially when it comes to intangible property, which is why you would pay a royalty, those are the situations where I'm going to take a closer look at. Um, and then in addition to that, I think you know outbound payments when it relates to management service fees, those are always areas that are going to be challenged, not just in South Korea, but in other jurisdictions. But I think now South Korea is much more focused on areas such as those royalty payments, such as those outbound management service payments, and where companies are showing a lot of volatility on a year-over-year basis as it relates to the transfer pricing payment. Of
0: course. And of course, South Korea is a member of the OECD. Has it adopted BEPS Action 13?
1: It has. So as a member of the OECD, ultimately, they've uh, they've embraced Action 13, right? I think it, it's it's beneficial to them in that they're now much more aware of the tax challenges that arise as as a result of multinationals operating in a variety of different jurisdictions around the world, where there's you know every tax regimen is unilateral. There's a lot of arbitrage situations that are being taken advantage of, right? I think the the nuance that they've applied to it, which in terms of local adoption, they've adopted Action 13, so that it has to meet, you know, intercompany transaction amounts have to meet certain thresholds, right? So for example, if a company doesn't have revenue that exceeds 100 billion Korean won, then they don't have to meet all of the Action 13 documentation requirements, right? Or if the cross-border transaction amount does not exceed 50 billion Korean won, then they don't have to adopt all these documentation requirements. Even if you are under those specific thresholds, there is this idea that you should still have a transfer pricing study and, and that in order to make sure that you can still demonstrate that the intercompany transactions are conducted at arm's length because there could still be a penalty imposed in case you don't have the right level of documentation, right? Or in case you can't support the transfer pricing framework and policy. So that's really important to note that even though you're not going to be penalized as a multinational for not having the documentation because it's not mandatory unless you meet a certain threshold. It's still a requirement to demonstrate compliance with the arms length principle. And so in order to demonstrate compliance with the arms length principle, if you are being asked about it, if it has been determined that the transfer price policies and the actual transfer price payments were not conducted at arm's length, you can still be penalized. You can be penalized to the extent that you don't have the documentation to prove compliant. So it, even the, the thresholds themselves, basically, they draw the line between must have and and should have, Right. But, but then at the end of the day, you still should have everything in place.
0: You were mentioning before loopholes. Is that where any of the loopholes exist between the must and the should thresholds?
1: What I mean by the tax loopholes are that if a company were to set up a holding company in a particular type of jurisdiction, that could create an advantage, a tax advantage for them, right? Right. I don't necessarily think that the, the threshold is necessarily a loophole, but it is a reason why certain multinationals don't respect the documentation requirements as much as they should, right? It's it's that fine line where a company can make the decision, well, if you know, if I don't have to have it, if it's not a must have, I don't need to file it and I don't you know, no one's going to be asking for it. Do it really need to happen? It's sort of that philosophical question of, hey, if a tree falls in a forest right. and nobody's around, doesn't make a sound. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't meet the thresholds, uh, do you really need to be in arms? Like, um, but what about country by country reports? Are companies required to submit those?
1: Once again, they're required to submit them based on the consolidated group revenue threshold. So the OECD guidelines and and generally around the world, they had established a threshold of 750 million euros. So in Korea, if the domestic ultimate parent entity has a consolidated group revenue of more than one trillion Korean won, then they have to file the country by country report. And then if the foreign ultimate parent entity exceeds 750 million, that follows along the lines of requiring a country by country report. Now that they have to file in Korea, if the jurisdiction where the parent company operates doesn't require a country by country report, okay? Or if there is no exchange of information agreement, so basically you have to file the country by country report in Korea if the parent company's jurisdiction doesn't require the country by country report. That's easy. If, if you don't have to file it in your parent country, then yes, you have to file it in Korea. Or if you have to file it in the country of your parent company, that's great. But if that country doesn't have an information sharing exchange arrangement with Korea, then you have to file it in Korea as well. So I, going back to the basics of country by country reporting, remember the country by country reporting information is shared between different countries based on that automatic exchange of information agreement that the MCAA, Multilateral Competent Authority Agreement.
0: Essentially, the bottom line of, of that law is we're going to get a CBCR one way or another
1: one way or another that's right if you if you are a company with global revenue that exceeds 750 million euros or one trillion korean won yes we need to see that country by country report whether or not it's coming directly from you right or from another country.
0: and at that threshold companies that big they should have one somewhere within the sphere with which South Korea has a treaty and can obtain that document anyway, right? Is that is that the kind of the assumption?
1: That's that's probably true, right? I mean, as an OECD member country, I want to say that there are definitely over a hundred countries right now that have signed that multilateral information sharing agreement, automatic exchange of information. And so the likelihood of South Korea being a party to that information sharing agreement is pretty high. They have also signed the agreement and the arrangement. And remember, right, most OECD countries have adopted the country by country reporting requirements. That is a minimum standard in order to be part of the whole inclusive framework as it relates to the OECD BEPS action plan. And over a hundred countries have basically agreed to be part of that inclusive framework. So it's a pretty high threshold.
0: Right, right, right. Uh, Does South Korea impose any language requirements on transfer pricing documentation?
1: They do. The documentation should be submitted in Korean, actually. So the master file in and of itself can be submitted in English, but they do still require a Korean translation within a month of submitting the English documentation, right? And then the local file should be prepared in Korean in the local language. And I I think most of the tax authority in Korea and and just just as a side note, in Korea, they do teach English as part of the curriculum, even starting in elementary school. But remember as as non-native English speakers, they still want to see documentation in their local language. Um, And and it helps them to better understand the information being presented when it's in the local local language. So that is a requirement that they have today.
0: Right. We were discussing before how South Korea has adopted BEPS Action 13. Uh, Can you tell us about the specific regulations in the Combined Report of International Transactions?
1: So they basically have adopted the whole framework of... The the master fire requirements, the local fire requirements, country by country reporting requirements, they've recently put together some tax reform starting in 2020, right? And so as a result of the tax reform, there have been changes to the current environment in terms of what's required and what's not required, it's important to note that historically speaking, pre-BEPS, you know, they didn't have a master file requirement, right? Um, even pre-BEPS, they didn't have certain tax forms that required you to have your documentation. The documentation in and of itself, although it was a statutory requirement, it's more of, it was more of a contemporaneous requirement. So once again, it goes to the idea that multinationals, they historically have chosen to be reactive. We don't consider it to be mandatory because no one's looking at it, but we'll be able to put it together when they ask for it. Now, the tax reform requirements have changed that though because now there's a new filing form um, that is that requires the documentation in and of itself to be prepared in order to file that form. They have questions such as, what is the transfer pricing method being applied? So if they're going to ask that level of detail, they're basically asking for details about the transfer pricing documentation itself. So if you don't have it, you can't answer those questions. So that's how they've really incorporated into their current reporting requirements.
0: So what are the differences between the OECD guidelines and South Korea's transfer pricing regulations?
1: so the general context of the information is pretty much aligned i think a lot of the differences might be more so form over substance Uh, typically we would see that south korea has a very specified type of format for the reporting the new tax report that has to be submitted is a formalistic type of template that needs to be created and, and submitted with the tax return. But in terms of the documentation requirements, they're not as rigid, it's not like in Italy where it says you have to put it in this particular type of order, but you need to have all of those requisite components of the documentation that lines up pretty similarly with the OECD guidelines. Same with the master file, right? So. You don't need to have a specific template per se. You do need to follow the information and have all the components of information that are required, which is nice. So they're not as formalistic about the documentation, but the submission of information in the tax form has to meet the templates that they put forth.
0: So that keeps uh, you from handing in OECD guideline generic documentation. That's the line.
1: Well, definitely. I mean, you don't, OK, for first of all, you never want to submit or <laughs> prepare just a generic OECD.
0: But that's where you'll get caught if you do.
1: Right. Transfer right. pricing study. Yeah. I, and in South Korea specifically. So if you know anything about the history of South Korea, what's interesting is that it is a very nationalistic society. And what I mean by that is, you know, during the whole Korean War, there was a time where the Korean civilization almost lost its identity altogether. When the Japanese infiltrated Korea and they they took over, they were trying to assimilate the society, right? And, and, and basically destroy anything Korea related. Like my grandmother on my mother's side, she spoke Japanese fluently because she had lived in that, time right and so it was they were trying to get rid of the korean language Korean culture so because of that i think and what happened afterwards there's a very nationalistic pride about being south korean and and everything related to south korea especially the language and i think at the end of the day some of that translates into what what the local requirements are right so the local language i think plays to that historical context a little bit, and as well as the the need to put forth documentation in accordance with the local rules and regulations Mm as set forth by South Korea, I think is important because it shows a sign of respect. And respect is really important in the South Korean community. Respect is sort of paramount to ensuring that everything goes smoothly, right?
0: Of course. I got to say, anytime, you know, we, we can have somebody with the historical perspective, uh, Professor Burns comes to mind, if you remember from from last yep. September, mm-hmm. it, it, the thing I find so fascinating about transfer pricing is it's like seeing the history of of the post-war global economy just kind of spread out like how geologists look at rock formations to know about you know floods that happened a thousand years ago if you know how to read the rock then you can see that history
1: it's it's all interconnected right
0: yeah A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast,
1: feeling the squeeze, an R&D
0: tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. why should you have to spend your whole R and D tax credit on getting your R and D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. And interrupting after our ad break very briefly for our second CPE code word. And that code word is BTS. Very easy to spell as in the world renowned K-pop boy band in an instant way to appear anywhere between 15 and 30 percent more relevant to anyone in your life under 25 by name dropping them casually at Thanksgiving. That code word again is BTS. Just don't ask me what it stands for. Returning to our conversation, Mimi, do taxpayers have to submit additional disclosures?
1: With the introduction of tax reform in 2020, they do. Now they have new forms that have to be submitted and filed with the corporate income tax returns. Right As I was stating before, these new forms include information that you wouldn't have available unless you had your transfer pricing study prepared. For example, the transfer pricing method and the actual reason for selecting that method to analyze the intercompany transaction. So that's the type of information that is now being requested to be submitted as part of the tax return. The format of that is a little bit different depending on the type of transaction it could be, but you need to have this information for tangible goods transactions, intangibles, for services, and cost sharing arrangements. And you're going to also have to summarize all the different cross border transactions with the foreign related parties, not unlike the US 5471, for example, right? And you have to also provide a summarized income statement of the foreign related parties. That have the cross-border transactions with the South Korean entity, right? So almost showing providing visibility into the counterparty's profitability because they have an assessment or an understanding of what the local entity's profitability looks like. They want to see what the counterparty's profitability looks like, right? But that requirement doesn't apply unless you meet the thresholds. And that's where the threshold, I think, is is beneficial. You don't have to go through that level of detail.
0: That's for the bigger fish. Uh, What about transfer pricing methods? Does South Korea have a preference or hierarchy?
1: So the general consensus is that there's no preference, per se, right? That all the different methods that we normally talk about are applicable. They're going to follow the OECD's most reasonable method standard, which is going to be determined based on the availability of information, And you're going to have to be able to describe exactly why those other methods are not applicable, right? So anytime you do a transfer pricing method analysis, and especially in South Korea, you're going to have to provide an overview of, okay, why is this method considered the most reasonable method? And how come these other methods specifically are not applicable to analyze this type of transaction. You just need to provide that level of visibility in order for the tax authority to understand what your perspective is, right? And I think it's very telling because the amendments to the current legislative environment basically highlight this requirement of full transparency and understanding. They want to understand the transaction holistically they want to understand the commercial terms the financial implications they want to understand the market conditions associated with the the transaction and and the business rationalization behind it um and so ultimately to provide that level of context is really important and that's what a transfer pricing study uh, at the end of the day does right it gives that holistic picture of what this intercompany transaction flow looks like and and how it fits within the entire value chain.
0: I know a couple of folks at home might not already know we co-host TPU together. It's mostly you. I just I just ask the questions, uh, much like this episode. You're a very
1: important part of Transfer Pricing University.
0: <laughs> I appreciate that, but I can I can almost feel uh, you know the folks who maybe have done maybe one or two courses hearing this and saying what's the difference between that and a best method rule? What 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 separates the what we know as the best method rule from Korea's way of doing things where it's the most reasonable method you have to argue.
1: Yeah. Well, so the U S the U S adheres or adopts the best method role versus I would say, let's just categorize everybody else. Everybody else kind of sits with the most reasonable method. It's nomenclature, right? I think that the most reasonable method approach is more so geared towards providing more flexibility in terms of the legislative environment that, hey, we understand that the different methods could be applied to different types of transactions. So using your best judgment, right, you need to apply what the most reasonable method is versus in the U.S. it says, you know what, there should be a best method for purposes of this analysis and it's important to highlight that it is possible that methods are challenged under audits i think that's a big point of contention because it's an easy way for tax authorities to say you didn't choose the best method it should be analyzed under this type of method and the results are dramatically different and this is actually going to the point i was saying you know before about the us and saying that you have to have or select the best method i think you know, because the selection of the method, it is facts oriented, right? It is based on the facts and circumstances, but also, and and based on the availability of data. But I think it also gives the tax authority an advantage to say, well, you didn't choose the best method, right? Like, and I kind of feel that that might be why the choice of the words, so my husband, being an attorney, I think he always says every word matters, right? The placement of the if and the of um and the the and <laughs> every word matters. So knowing that these that the legislative environment, uh, that the lawyers who and politicians who put together the the legislation, they were cognizant of the choice of the words that they they used in the language. I think that was intentionally put forth to make it more of a viable challenge for the tax authority so that going to your question, they can challenge the method. Hey, that's not the best method. That is based on your facts and circumstances, based on what we are interpreting. You should be looking at this method and this method is going to produce this type of result and that result may not be as favorable to the taxpayer which ultimately then leads to an adjustment right
0: so so is the philosophy or for the most reasonable method uh, it can't be too far in your own favor basically <sighs>
1: Well, you can't necessarily say that, right? Because at the end of the day, I think the taxpayer wants to put their facts and circumstances in the best light possible. So yes, I mean, in some ways, you're going to look at all the different types of methods and you're going to make sure that you choose the method that's going to put your company's facts and circumstances in the best light possible. Like that that should be a factor that's taken into consideration for the transfer pricing analysis. I think that that's why the nomenclature the you know in the legislative environment is what it is such that it gives the tax authority the right to challenge that and to define hey is this in fact the most reasonable method or is this in fact the best method that could be applied and and they can challenge the taxpayer's notion that this method was in fact the most reasonable to be applied But here's the thing, as a taxpayer, as as a multinational operating in Korea, you're still going to highlight exactly why you did not choose those other methods. The challenge right now is that even though you put forth the reasons and the the rationalization of why those other methods are not reliable, there could still be the challenge coming from the tax authority on why. on their interpretation of the facts and circumstances and and why they think that, you know, a different method might produce a, a more reliable result.
0: Turning to benchmarks, does South Korea require local benchmarks?
1: They absolutely do, especially if the tested party is a Korean party, right? So if the tested party is operating in Korea, they're going to want to see Korean benchmarks. And this is actually, An area of concern, I've talked to companies that have been audited in Korea before and having consistent and local Korean comps becomes that much more important because in those instances where I know of companies that have been audited in Korea, that was definitely a big point of contention. And and it's challenging to address that. So having local Korean comps that the tax authority also has access to has always been a, a very, a way to mitigate ongoing risk, right?
0: And what other changes came about as a result of the 2020 tax reform in South Korea?
1: So as a result of the tax reform, they also incorporated the concept of low value added services. So low value added intergroup services. Now, I think this Once again, it it falls in line with the OECD guidelines to say, hey, there's a group of services that are being provided that would be considered low value add and it's appropriate to charge a 5% markup. So they provided more guidance associated with those types of services, right? They also provided more guidance associated with the treatment of audits. And then basically saying, you know, historically, I think the tax authorities had struggled with taxpayers not being able to provide information in a timely basis. What ended up happening was the taxpayer would say, oh, I'm going to get that to you. I don't have it readily available. And so I'm going to provide it to you. I just need a little bit more time. That Then this ultimately lengthens the entire audit cycle or the process. So now, this is where the tax authorities are becoming a lot more rigid and have put more constraints around the timing requirements and the requirements associated with contemporaneous documentation and making sure that, that taxpayers understand this information should be readily available. We're not going to give you the amount of time that we, we historically might have provided to you, right? You need to be able to justify why you can't have this information in a timely basis or else we're going to penalize you. So there's a lot more of a, of a penalty environment for non-compliance, for late submissions. And there are valid reasons for not being able to provide information in a timely manner. So, and they outline a couple of those those reasons, right? I mean, it could be natural disasters, right? <laughs> so, like what we're facing today. So, and it could be, you know, based on business crises, but there are definitely reasons why taxpayers won't have the information readily available, but that additional time for finding the information is not something that tax authorities are going to respect anymore, without a viable reason for that. And then in the audit process, I think what's interesting about the the tax reform is taxpayers could historically have a parallel track of going through the MAP process and going through the court of appeals process. And you could do that simultaneously um, and then almost like choose the better path or the better outcome, so to speak but they've adjusted that accordingly so that they'd put less burden onto the tax court system and basically said, listen, if you're going to go through the MAP process, that's going to override anything in the tax court system because you're overburdening the court system, you know, and sort of based on like trying to get a favorable outcome, right? And so the MAP procedures, we're going to enhance the MAP procedures. You're going to go down that, right? And that's That's ultimately going to override anything you go into court. So don't don't just appeal in court unless you have a really valid reason to do so.
0: Can I get a definition for MAP for our for our one hundred and one listeners?
1: Sure, sure. So the MAP procedures, right, which stands for the mutual agreement procedures. It's an important process for taxpayers because it it makes sure that to the extent that they are being challenged or audited with respect to the intercompany payments, it gives them an avenue to be able to argue their position, right?
0: Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai/slash tp. That's xbsai tp. And for our third and final CPE code word, that code word is wave, as in the Korean wave, a movement in cinema and even television drama that has had a major cultural impact all over the world over the last 30 years. We now come to my favorite part of the show, our rapid fire round of questions called What We Want To Know. Always our question one, Mimi, are you ready? I am ready. One thing clients say to me all the time about transfer pricing is- I would
1: say, clients say, Transfer pricing is so much more interesting than I realized. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and I I think it's split 80, 20. I think that there's probably about 20% of, of customers and clients who basically say, I, yeah, I don't find transfer pricing all that interesting. They're the minority. The majority would tend to say, wow, Transfer pricing is so much more interesting or fascinating than I ever imagined.
0: I think the bigger picture you go with it with what we were saying before about history, then especially where you can kind of the, see the rhyme and the reason and, and where it's tied in, in our shared past. At the, that's, a, that's a really incredible moment. Question number three was gonna be what you respond with, but I guess you would agree that it is very interesting.
1: I, well, I would. I mean, this is the reason why I've stayed in transfer pricing for as long as I have in in fact there was there was a point in my career where I could have chosen more of the I would say corporate managerial route as opposed to the transfer pricing technical route yeah and 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 everyone has these decision moments in their life right throughout their career and so when I came to one of those forks in the road I chose to stay in transfer pricing and continue to enhance my technical knowledge instead of going the corporate managerial route. So, and, and I've, I've enjoyed it. And I think a lot, I, I enjoy it because transfer pricing, and I've said this before too, Matt, right? It, yeah. Because transfer pricing is not an exact science and I've, and, and it allows me to tap into a creative side of me that I honestly, I never knew existed. Right. And because growing up, I was always very good at math. I was very much like, uh, you know, I was very good at things Mm -hmm. that were extremely logical. I excelled at math. I took calculus in 10th grade or something. And it was by the time I was in a senior in high school, I was taking math classes at the university i had to go to yeah. the university to take math
0: so see is a see as a humanities kid and uh and having my entire network all in media and humanities they're constantly fascinated so you're the one at an international tax firm uh, you know, <laughs> like like oh who, who thought you would turn into the you know this the the quote unquote stuffed shirt that's their term i i don't i don't like that term anyway <laughs> um what is the best professional advice you've ever received
1: oh the best professional advice i've ever received i you know i i have to say and 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 this wasn't even in a professional context but i'll give credit to my husband it's it's staying curious yeah. right it really is and you know he, it's it's funny because he he is a he's an attorney i've said that before and he always jokes to me he's like i'm going to go back to med school and i was like what why would you do that like <laughs> but it's this natural curiosity and and sort of um about life and about about international tax about everything about your career that i think has really differentiated you know my appreciation um, in what I do, right, and then perhaps what other people might say. I, I don't like going through the motions. I like to continuously learn new things, and that natural curiosity. The I, I feel like I'm I'm healthier both mentally and physically when I continue to challenge myself. So I, uh, that's that's I think the best sort of professional and even personal advice that I've experienced.
0: Right. And also sitting back in that kind of wonder and, and, and being aware of the things you'll never know the answer to mm-hmm. uh, that even can be known, which which gets really existential in like Plato's philosophy, you know, Allegory of the Cave stuff. But we'll we'll keep it simple for right now. <laughs> Mimi, thank you so much for joining us again. And thank you to everyone for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And while you're there, don't be afraid to check out our news podcast that's the Fiona Show, hot off the press. Get your latest transfer pricing reg updates and headlines, all in under ten minutes. My name is Matthew Demello, and I host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Marilyn Mitchum Strom, our executive producer, writes our scripts. We'll catch everybody next week.